1: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.
2: Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The world's richest man, controversial billionaire Elon Musk, buys the social media platform Twitter for forty-four billion US dollars We have reaction. Also coming up, coalition leaders meet tonight to discuss government plans to use vacant social housing to house people fleeing the war in Ukraine. A president for all, Emmanuel Macron's election victory in a fractured France, and what it means for the EU and the war in Ukraine. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on the hashtag tonightVMTV. Tonight, controversial billionaire Elon Musk, the world's richest man, has struck a deal to buy the social media giant Twitter for $44 billion. Twitter's board has tonight agreed to the takeover by the businessman who owns car company Tesla and space exploration company SpaceX. He has promised to unlock Twitter's potential. He argues the platform needs to be taken private and to become what he calls a genuine platform for free speech. He said in a statement tonight, free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. He also says he wants to make Twitter better than ever by enhancing the product with new features, making the algorithms open source to increase trust, defeating the spam bots and authenticating all humans. Twitter, he says, has tremendous potential and he looks forward to working with the company and the community of users to unlock it. Well, for more on this, I'm joined by Stephen O'Leary from social media analytics company, Olytico. Stephen, you're very welcome along to the programme tonight. Musk buying out shareholders at a cost of 44 billion uh, US dollars. What's your reaction to the news tonight? And indeed, what's the reaction on Twitter?
3: Well, not surprisingly, it's all that anyone is talking about at the moment on Twitter. I think really this comes down to one key word and that's trust. Um, on one side of the debate, you've got those who trust Musk and they believe in what he's saying, and they believe he's going to make Twitter better in a multitude of ways. And on the other side, you've those who don't trust Musk. They've heard him speak in the past, and they've seen what he's done in the past, and they believe that taking over Twitter is not a good thing.
2: Yeah, he says that uh, social media has become too restrictive and he is a fan of free speech. Are we looking at a very different platform
3: under Elon Musk? I think the area that he's focused on is the algorithm. He has a belief, and it's shared by many others, that the way in which Twitter decides what to promote, what you see in your feed, is very opaque. And and that ultimately, it's all garnered um, around the idea of interaction and engagement. And that's because advertising is so key to a platform like Twitter, and they want to keep their users engaged. Now, if that's the case then Musk wants to strip all that back. He wants everyone to be able to see what the algorithm looks like. He wants everyone to be able to see why things trend. He wants to bring this ultimate uh, idea of transparency to the network, or at least that's what he tells us. But we've also seen Musk use Twitter over the last three or four years in particular to move the market. You know, He's come out with statements around different types of things like shares and products and other bits and pieces, and when he does, Millions, if not billions, see what he says, and that can have a fairly major impact.
2: Uh, Now, Twitter famously dumped Donald Trump from the platform um, on January 8th, 2021, due to the risk of further incitement of violence after the Capitol riots. Is he likely to make a comeback? Is Elon Musk likely to let him back on the platform?
3: It's so hard to predict. It all comes down to the kind of rules and I suppose the type of space that Musk wants Twitter to be. Ultimately, he'll be the one who decides. But we do know that there is regulation around communication and it's not the absolute Wild West. There will be rules. There'll be limitations. Musk can't do absolutely everything that he wants to do, but certainly change is coming and I think it won't be long, certainly if this passes through the the regulatory uh, restrictions that exist before we see changes to the platform.
2: Okay, Stephen, there we leave it. Thanks for your insights tonight. Stephen O'Leary from Alitico. Um, I want to bring my panel in now. I'm joined by Independent Senator Eileen Flynn. Ireland editor at independent.ie Fiannon Sheehan, Social Democrats TD Keane O'Callaghan and Fianna Fáil Senator Lisa Chambers. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. And what do you think about this move? Would you be a big user of Twitter, Eileen? Um, What what do you think about the the decision um, by Elon Musk to spend all this money buying up what is a huge social media platform with an awful lot of influence?
4: I think, uh, I, I personally, I am a big user of it, I have to be. It's uh, another sense of community, if you want, is actually is uh, social media. Also, it's, it's genuinely not real life, you know, that kind of way. And I think people need to be very mindful of that. I think that it, Ireland needs to protect people from marginalised communities uh, and also, of course, uh, racism and hatred that goes on on uh, social media and especially on Twitter, you know. So now my question is actually to the Irish government, what are we going to put in place to protect the most vulnerable people within our society. We have to, as, as a as a nation, we have to put in uh, regulations and rules because it doesn't look like uh, he, he just wants it a free for all. And for some people, unfortunately, hate speech is, is freedom of speech. And we all know that's that mm. it's very hurtful. It's uh, People already suffer with hatred online. So I think the government needs to as possible now put measures in, 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 uh, in place to protect people and elsewhere. Uh, yeah, Lisa, uh, what
2: would you make of that? I mean, a lot of people, you know, even listening to Elon Musk's statement, he's talking about free speech and op- open source, you know, for algorithms so that everyone can see everything and comment on everything. But that comes with its own dangers, doesn't it? Um, what, what are we doing? Are we doing enough at EU level? Like, we know that a lot of the regulations that are in place to date simply have no teeth.
1: Yeah I mean are we doing enough no is the short answer. Um, We're only starting to get to grips with it and we're way behind where the technology is and we're now passing an online media regulation bill that's going through the shannon this week to try and regulate that space but there are no borders with the internet so it makes it very difficult and you do need to work collectively not just across the eu but globally and um, you know we're, we're talking about elon musk buying twitter and you might suggest or some are suggesting that it's a it's a fantastic place where as it is it's already a very nasty um space to operate in. and as eileen said you know if you're in public life you have to work and it's part of your workspace unfortunately so whether he makes it better or worse I mean it, it's quite a bad space as it stands we are going to have to watch what he's doing with it um, and I think the best thing we can do is to create awareness about it uh, to raise awareness to have conversations about it to warn people about the dangers of online and, and what they see isn't always real or I think picture. people
2: do know that though I mean I mm. think the, the, the problem is there's still an awful lot of hate and vitriol that 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 no one that none the tech giants aren't accountable for
1: well you and I know this uh, but I'm talking about ch- younger people and children that are using mm. this space as well so there is an onus on us as a state, as a country and in working in the European Union to try and protect our citizens from this online space. But it is a mammoth task and it's not easily done. Uh, your view on um, this, this Musk buyout, uh, obviously there's a huge amount of
2: ego involved there and he got some 23 billion, I think, from Tesla shares of the like last week. So a um, sure. sure, small change to him, perhaps.
5: megalomaniac billionaire who wants to take over the world, takes over a little company. So what could possibly go wrong? Uh, you have to say at the moment, while he is talking about it, making it a, a more open space, it's not as if the, the current opera, operators of Twitter have a good record in terms of protecting people on it. Uh, the, the amount of, as you say, hate speech, vitriol, conspiracy theory that, that can be propagated upon it haven't really seen much evidence uh, that they have got got to grips with that. They seem to adopt uh, this rather tedious mantra that, well, you know, what's said in our platform isn't really our responsibility. It's down to the people who say it. That operates in a a different uh, manner to every other media organization. If somebody on this panel says something outrageous here tonight, it'll be your problem. It'll be Virgin Media's problem. As a result of that, you won't be able to just say, well, the person was sitting there and they just just passed uh, this this comment. So we'll see, is there some balance to his view on, on free speech? We've just come through a global pandemic where we saw the power of conspiracy theories about about uh, vaccines and the influence that, that that can have. So what is a management structure under Elon Musk going to do in a situation like that?
2: Yeah, it's interesting, though, Keen. you know, people who would be, you know, like Musk's way of thinking would say, look, free speech, is, as Twitter is already, it's not really protecting its users to make algorithms to see why some tweets are... Pro- Promoted? Why you are seeing something on your feed that I'm not seeing? That this is a this is a good thing, arguably more transparency is what he's saying.
0: Yeah, I think if there is more transparency around the algorithms, that will be be positive. I think what we're all wondering is what else is going to come with that, and what else is he going to do? And there is a responsibility on all platforms and everyone who's publishing information. You know, with free speech comes responsibilities in terms of. The, you know information responsibility in terms of people not being subjected to hate vitriol the effect that it can have on people's mental health and all other broadcasters and print and uh, you know radio and tv are subject to a whole range of standards and they don't seem to apply to social media companies so there i'm not comfortable with a situation where we're absolutely you know at the you know at the risk of who owns twitter and that's you know how social media and how Twitter evolves is based on just who owns it. There has to be minimum standards in terms of how it's regulated just to provide a you know, fairness and, and safety for people.
2: Okay, well, I want to move on to uh, political matters back home now and uh, the freeing up of vacant housing for refugees or what's being considered at the moment by the coalition leaders, what's being brought to cabinet, in fact, tomorrow. Fiona, what exactly um, are the three leaders of the coalition discussing uh, this evening? What have they been talking about? Uh, And how many houses do they hope that this can kind of free up in this bid to help people who are fleeing a war situation? Yeah,
5: what they're discussing is their their primary difficulty that the number of people that are entering the the country uh, from Ukraine, is vastly exceeding the number uh, of accommodation spaces that are are available. So what they're discussing now is, well, what are the the different streams uh, of accommodation that they they can bring online? They've already tapped uh, resources such as the the private uh, hotel and guesthouse sector. They've already gone down the the track of of looking for Readily available accommodation that isn't in use. Your 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 old school convents or, mm. or colleges around, around the country. Um, so what what they are looking at now is are there ways and means to to a uh, bring about fast track uh, planning that would allow you to put accommodation in place is there other sort of accommodation in the system that can be can be brought online uh fairly fast this is the vacant housing such as vacant housing which vacant social housing which by its nature you would say well surely that should be coming back into stock quite fast anyhow but there is you know there's a time scale there in terms of, of turning houses around while that may be uh, a central plank of it it's, it's not really going to supply you with with that much uh, in the, in the the short term uh your other issue that that they have to look at where exactly is the available uh, manpower to actually turn around exist, there's not a readily available pool of accommodations you can just say we we can put people into that by ju- by just uh taking it on from from the, the the private sector so they're the kind of issues and their their primary problem is. We're not in a position where we can say we're going to put a cap on the numbers, on the numbers mm. coming here. We can't definitively say how many people are going to come here or for how long they, that they are going to actually come.
2: Um, and the the Taoiseach was very uh, keen to say that there wouldn't be a cap on the number of refugees that that are um, coming into the country. Uh, Just over 25,000 have arrived to date and close to 17,000, I think, Eileen, have been housed, which means that thousands have not. How big a challenge do you think is it for government to make this decision to try and house refugees when we do have a housing crisis existing in this country at the moment? Yeah
4: just to say uh claire from from my work on the ground and speaking to people in in the ordinary community people in, in Ireland are very hurt and I think for me it's important that I say this today they can't understand where the government are, are getting the houses from when we have a homeless crisis right and for me it's so important to stress the fact that there's room for us all you know there's absolutely room for every one of us including refugees and all refugees if, if, if you want okay so these people are going into hotels right who wants to live in a hotel with two three children in one bedroom so even the accommodation is not suitable mm. for, for refugees. Now, uh, Roderick O'Gorman is speaking around ending direct provision. That's nowhere in sight. Uh, hoteliers are making profit out of people's misfortune and I think that's something we really have to look at. Well, I suppose society. the government
2: have said to hoteliers as well, uh, we need your hotels because we need to house people.
4: Yeah, but they're getting paid for it. Obviously, they'd be getting money mm. for it, so it's also business to uh, hoteliers too. And just to say, they need to tackle the housing crisis in Ireland for every Do You know, does that make any sense? And it's not like, you know, so there needs to be a plan put in place where people, there's services there for all refugees too. And I think that's really, really important. There's a lot of anger out in the wider society, in my experience, over the last uh, few weeks, because people can't understand what's been going on. And now all of a sudden these houses are uh, vacant houses for people. And they should obviously home uh, refugees and people should have dignity. All uh, All refugees should have dignity. And I feel that they're coming to this country and being shoved in hmm. one bedroom or um, in a hotel. Uh, just
2: just on this, this task force that's been developed as well, Lisa, an interdepartmental committee has been established to look to look at how we can help house people. Housing advocates would say, where is the cross-departmental work to date? What's being done to date? We have some, they're talking about uh, 100 houses being made available um, immediately under vacant housing and hundreds more to come on stream if they manage to turn them around. Um, you know, and people would say this, this should have been policy for a long time in order to solve the problem of people in direct provision and that the homeless people and, and the people on waiting lists currently...
1: Yeah, I can understand that argument. Um, there's no doubt about it that the, the scale of the humanitarian crisis and the numbers coming into the country, um, you know, we're not prepared for that, but we're doing our best to deal with it as it comes. There was no opportunity to make plans. We've, like, like every other European country taking in refugees, we're doing our best first and foremost to put a roof over people's heads to make sure they have food and that they're cared for and that we deal with the trauma that's coming in with these people as well. So I think You know, we are doing our best. Um, We are dealing with issues and and problems as they arrive, because do do you think we need to be more ambitious? I think we're being as ambitious as is possible, Um, taking into account what's already been said that there is a housing crisis in the country. We have people on housing waiting lists, so trying to deal with that, and also the numbers coming in are are colossal, and, and they are going to continue. So, first and foremost, it's about trying to do the right thing keep people in shelter, make sure that they have food and do our best to try and move people onto more permanent solutions. It is a mammoth task and every government department is working day and night to try and deal with this. Uh, Keen, a a mammoth
2: task for the government. How do you think they're doing and what do you think of these plans that are being brought before cabinet?
0: Yeah, it it is a huge challenge the government has taken on. I think there needs to be now a step change really in the response and we need to see much more coordination, much more uh, of a plan put in place. In relation to the, you know, the vacancy and the voids, there has been an issue for years where some local authorities don't turn around uh, social homes as quickly as others. Mm. So, uh, for example, Mayo County Council turned them around in about 12 weeks, where if we've seen in Cork City you're taking more than 80 weeks to turn around a social home completely. 80 weeks, more than turn- 80 weeks that's now.
2: for a refurbishment or... Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: or... yeah. That's their, that's their, their, their average, which is completely and okay, utterly so... un, unacceptable. Should never have been tolerated. We should be, what the government should be putting in is something like, you know, a twelve-week, except for maybe exceptional yeah. circumstances. On all social homes, have to be re-let renovated in that time. There are, there are put into batches to renovate, but these are kind of things that should have been done years ago. Should be done now. Should be done anyway to address our housing crisis. And I t- think in terms of. Uh, you know catering for refugees in terms of housing, we mm. should be looking at how we can bring in additional right. uh, measures or additional housing supply.
2: Okay well I'm also joined by the CEO of the Irish Refugee Council Nick Henderson, um, Nick you may have been listening there to what people make of these plans to free up um, vacant social housing, uh, do, do you believe it can work and that it can be turned around quickly enough?
6: Yeah, maybe if I could just begin by talking about the general category of vacant housing, and that's a very broad umbrella. Uh, and as far as we understand from the the, the reports today, uh, voids, which is social housing, which currently doesn't have an att- a tenant, is being considered for Ukrainian refugees. But crucially, it's also being considered for people who are already on the social housing waiting list. Uh, We're very aware as an organization that there is an ongoing housing crisis in Ireland. So uh, with all that being said, voids, if Ukrainian refugees were able to avail of them, may be a part of the solution, but I would suggest that they are only uh, a a part of the solution in the the medium to long term. Uh, I think the estimates today were something like
2: sorry sorry nick i don't know if you can hear me there but what would you see as being then the solution the key solutions that will actually work and can work quickly
6: yeah as an organization we've recommended the focus on vacant housing but trying to focus on housing that isn't being used and wouldn't draw on supply that is already in demand uh, elsewhere. So housing that maybe w- wouldn't be taking away accommodation that is already in the pipeline, for example, for people on the social housing waiting list. So that would be a focus on uh, holiday homes we've recommended, for example, also uh, built to rent accommodation and also vacant accommodation, which may be ready in, 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 in May or in June. I think one of the things we've got to focus on is that we've done well in the emergency response and now it's a matter of us changing gear and uh, adapting to the medium to long term given that the conflict and the war in in ukraine will persist it seems particularly in the east of the country and we would hope and this is a problem We think, we would hope that there's not going to be a gap between accommodation for people, emergency accommodation, and then having to wait uh, into the summer or beyond for these medium to long term options to come online.
2: Yeah, and see how quickly they can speed up those options. Um, Thank you, Nick, for that. Uh, I want to ask... um, before we go to a break, uh, uh, on about the situation uh, with Leo Varadkar now and a file being sent to the GPP um, regarding the Garda investigation into a leak of a GP contract to his friend. Uh, tell us about the political implications now that you see with this, now that it's been um, you know, elevated and brought before the Director of Public Prosecutions. Well, the fact
5: that, that you've had a, a 16-month long investigation, a substantial file going to the Director of Public Prosecutions is, is significant uh, in, in its own right. The, the Tánis continues to, to say that, that protests, uh, his innocence and, that, and that's fair enough. Three potential scenarios now come. Uh, he gets a, a quick decision uh, of no, no prosecution uh, and then that, that, that clears up the matter for him and it's, a, it's an internal issue then for, for Fine Gael uh, really and, and the voters come, come the next uh, general mm-hmm. election, what they, they view on that. He gets a, a quick decision for a prosecution. Uh, in which case then does his, political, does his position become untenable because how are you going to get that trial out of the way before uh, December? And the, the third scenario is you get a, a long decision whereby by December when he's due to become Taoiseach we don't know whether he's facing a prosecution or not. And then that places enormous pressure upon, I suppose, Fianna Fáil and, and, the, and the Green Party in terms of are they at that point happy to, to continue to say well we need to abide by, by due process and let things play themselves out.
2: Yeah, uh, like it's a Fine Gael problem at the moment, Lisa Chambers, but it could soon be a Fianna Fáil
1: one. What are the rumblings within Fianna Fáil on this? Uh, we haven't really discussed it as, as, a, as a party at, at the people. Really? It's not an issue at all? It's not that it's not an issue, but what I will say, first and foremost, is that a cornerstone of our justice system is innocent until proven guilty. And regardless of what your position is, whether it's Thonister or the local postman, you are entitled to due process and to, to fairness. And i think that has to be applied to everybody so what i would say is that it's unfortunate that it took 16 months to prepare that file i don't know why it took that long it would have been better i think all around if it hadn't taken that long perhaps there's a good reason for it we just don't know so it would be i think in everybody's interest if it could be brought to a conclusion but apart from that uh, no more than anybody else i only know what i've read in the papers but as i said it is at the moment an allegation and, and he is entitled to, to fair procedures and due process and, and uh keen will the opposition be holding their fire on this one until there's an outcome from the
2: dpp
0: I think it depends on how quick that outcome is. So it would be preferable for that to to happen quite quickly. But we've never had a situation before where someone has gone to the office of Taoiseach with allegations like this hanging over them. So I think that would be quite a problematic uh, situation and that would push uh, the different government parties. I think all of them would be under pressure uh, and I don't think any of them would be happy with a situation where uh, these allegations were hanging over someone and weren't resolved uh, when it was coming to an appointment to a Taoiseach. Okay, my
2: thanks to Keena O'Callaghan, Lisa, Eileen, and Fiona are staying with me. Coming up next, Emmanuel Macron's election victory in France and what it means for the EU-Russia relations and the war in Ukraine. Stay with us.
0: Hiring for your small business?
7: If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
2: French President Emmanuel Macron has vowed to help heal a fractured France after winning a decisive victory in France's presidential election over his far-right rival, Marine Le Pen. A short time ago, I asked Paris correspondent Ross Cullen what message the victory uh, sent to the EU and Russia as the war in Ukraine continues.
7: Well, Claire, it sends a message of continuity, continuity of policy, continuity of power with Emmanuel Macron's remarkable uh, re-election. The European Union understand French policy underneath Emmanuel Macron's government, and so that will be continuing. It's also interesting that Vladimir Putin congratulated Emmanuel Macron on his election victory, saying that he wishes him every success, because surely something that is considered to be a success by Emmanuel Macron after so much dialogue. Uh, with uh, world leaders and with the Russian president would be bringing the war in Ukraine uh, to a rapid uh, conclusion. Also relief in European Union uh, institutions with the re-election of Emmanuel Macron because they understand his message on Europe and on Russia. Marine Le Pen does have pro-Putin sympathies and she has said in the past that she admires the policies of Vladimir Putin and so there was uh, unease in some EU circles that there could be a vastly different message from the French presidency had she
2: Of course, there's a lot of division left in France now. How difficult is Macron's stated ambition to to heal a fractured country?
7: Well, we have to bear in mind that some 13 million voters chose to stay at home. They abstained from voting in the second round. Also, a chunk of those who did vote for Emmanuel Macron did so, not because they overtly support his policies, but more of a strategic vote, a protest vote against Marine Le Pen. He will have to win round those voters to convince them fully. Also, the man who came third in the first round, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, picked up 20% of the vote, and millions of young and left-minded and client climate-minded voters. Emmanuel Macron admitted he didn't go far enough on the climate emergency in his first term, and so he says he's committed to going much further, much faster on green ambition uh, this time around. And he did actually reach out in his speech after uh, the um, the results were first uh, published, saying that he recognizes people didn't vote for him. People chose not to vote or chose to vote for another candidate. He recognizes their, um, their resilience and also their ambition and adherence to the values of the French Republic, he says he also adheres to those values
2: and he wants to remain faithful to them. And then there's the upcoming assembly elections. How do you think they're going to play out? What challenge will be there for Macron? Well, this was
7: history, not just because Emmanuel Macron won re-election for the first time in 20 years, but, but he did so for the first time since 1960. We saw a president winning re-election with a parliamentary majority, not since Charles de Gaulle in the mid-60s have we seen uh, this. Emmanuel Macron does have his party, Republic, on the move and its associated allies with a majority in Parliament. So, Claire, over the last five years, he's been able to pass legislation. What we are seeing already with the opposition, Marie Marine Le Pen in her concession speech said that she was determined immediately to start campaigning for the June legislative elections to try to get as many MPs as possible, to try to block any proposed legislation from Emmanuel Macron. He will be trying to uh, keep or increase the number of MPs that he has, and so he can carry out his plan of policies, including uh, on the climate emergency, trying to make France the first big country to go fossil-free, fossil fuel-free, and also on that controversial pension reform he didn't manage to pass in his first term.
2: Okay, there we leave it. From Paris, Ross Cullen, thank you for joining us tonight. Well, my panel is still with me and I'm also joined by DCU Professor of Politics, at Donika Bacon. And Danica, um listening there, you know, a decisive win for Macron, but Marine Le Pen still getting 41.5% of the vote and a huge number of people abstaining altogether, the highest number, I think, since 1969. Uh, what does it say about the French uh, electorate and, and how they view things and indeed, you know, wider politics in Europe?
8: Well, it reveals that France is fragmented, but while there is an obvious, you know, emphasis on, you know, Marine Le Pen's vote, uh, there has been a, a Le Pen on the ballot paper at every French presidential election since 1988, when her father first uh, ran, or actually was his second occasion he ran. He ran in '74 as well. And they've never won. And this was a decisive victory. Let's not get away from that. Um, you know, the British, you might say, Brexiteer press were emphasising today that this was a, a close call. Uh, this is the same media where we're saying that 52% in Britain was an overwhelming mandate for change. And indeed, of course, Boris Johnson... Uh, got forty-two percent for his government, so fifty-eight percent is a is a win, and and, and we can not take away from that. And just as, as your as your previous speaker rightly pointed out, that some people voted for Macron strategically, uh, you know, because they didn't want to vote for Le Pen. A lot of people voted for Le Pen not because they're far right supporters; simply they want to change, that they they, they want something different. Um, yeah. Even though Macron is, is is only forty-four years of age, he's had trouble kind of energising the youth vote, um, and and they stayed away in large numbers. Many of them abstained. Actually, in this election, the second largest number of abstainers in French electoral history.
2: Yeah, Eileen, um, when you hear that, what do you make of the result? And despite the Macron win, there was that, that vote from Marine Le Pen. You were nodding away. And when Donica was saying there, they were voting for Marine Le Pen for other reasons.
4: Yeah, uh, my, my, my reason why I was uh, nodding was that, you know, 41 percent voted for and just to say that a victory for me is not voting for the far 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 right you know what france has in place at the moment is not ideal but it's better than having um uh, le pen and and i think that there is a victory within itself just to say you know people they had two candidates that. Like one was bad and the other was worse, you know, so they didn't have a good uh, a good a good a good choice if you want. And again, fair uh, fair uh, people vote in fair as well, and with uh, Le Pen, like she she was selling to the community to the working class people that she was going to do a, B, C, and D for them, you know what I mean, and looking after as they say her own. and I think that's what uh, drives the 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 narrative of of the far right if you want. And again, I just think it's a great day for Europe again. Is not an ideal candidate. I don't believe it's in, but I think it's it's better than having uh, Le Pen uh, Le Pen in. So uh, yeah, anything better than than far far right. Um, I suppose it, it's how Emmanuel Macron then
2: Fiona you know, used this second term to establish himself as the sort of primary leader within Europe now that Angela Merkel has exited.
5: Yeah, and, and you know. Talking down a, a, a result where he won three out of five votes and he still came first in in, in the first round as well is is kind of a strange situation. I mean, I, I was over in the UK two years ago. They had Boris Johnson versus Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Well, talk about dire versus dire. Uh, that was an appalling choice. But that that's what you know the, the voters are put is, is that's what's put put before them. Um, There is now a critical moment emerging for for the EU and that's why this election was, was so important. Merkel's gone there is an argument now that that France can can take the lead in in what new shape will come about in Europe, particularly as we focus more on the needs of those uh, on on the the eastern uh, end of the Union, Mm. which has turned into more of a a security prerogative now than the economic one that probably was there back in 2004 uh, when they they joined uh, in the first place. So we'll have to see. Uh, what his agenda is there at the moment, he was he was having to over the last two weeks very much focus on his on his domestic agenda to get across the line here because ultimately, uh, Le Pen got that that large vote because she was broadening her base. The the question was, would she really have been uh, focused on those issues once she got in, or was she just going to be eurosceptic and antagonistic towards towards European uh, cooperation? Most likely, most likely so. So. We'll see over over the coming months what what direction that is going. But you can see a probably a broader militaristic focus coming uh, from, from particularly from a cooperation front at EU level. And will France be the leaders behind that?
2: Mm. Um, you know, it's interesting as well what Eileen was saying, Lisa, about you know um, you know Marine Le Pen's party looking at the the real fears and anxieties that people might have and exploiting those fears and anxieties. Um, you know, isn't, isn't that true that that's a challenge that faces governments right across Europe, and globally right now, that if you, we don't cater for everybody at every level, then we're going to sow these seeds of distrust?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's happening in many democracies across the world where the rise of the far right or populism, where you're promising lots of things to lots of people um, and using fear to kind of stoke up that anger and that rage within a society. And we see little bits of that here as well, thankfully not to the same extent. But, you know, if you look at on the other side, there is an argument that would say that the, you know, that maybe the establishments in these countries haven't provided what's needed to all elements of society as well. So it's an onus on both sides of the political divide to try and look after. But it be said here, um, not to the same extent. I mean, is everyone happy? No, they're not. But we don't have the type of divisive of politics, I believe, yet, and I hope we never get there. That you see in the UK or that you see in France. And I think what's worrying about what happened to France, and yes, it is a decisive victory. There's no doubt about it. And I think Macron's first meeting will be with Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, to try and reaffirm that Franco-German. Mm alliance and to focus on the Ukrainian war. But during the campaign, Macron pointed out that her party was funded by a loan from Russia. Um, she's nationalist. She's anti-immigrant. She's very much protectionist. Really, really scary policies, from my perspective anyways. And yet 13 million people voted for her. Um, so yes, some of them were strategic in that they didn't like Macron and he has acknowledged that. So he will have a job to do to try and, I suppose, unite his country going forward. But there's no doubt about it that it is important for the European Union to have a strong and stable France and, and a president at the helm that is pro-Europe and pro-the European project and the values that the European Union represents and I do believe she's not that
4: that many people that did vote for was uh, was was, uh, was was in a stand of a protest you know like not every person that voted for Le Pen was actually a far right uh, person and I think that's something that we need to, to, to be very clear about as well do you know because I think we can be given the far right ammunition and we can be given them uh, fuel for their fires if we're not careful enough around our language as well so I don't believe everyone that voted for was far right was to around a change really I think.
2: Yeah maybe lessons to be learned here for for, for governments um, generally from this um, from this election result on, on what more they could be doing.
5: Well, you brief you on? A leader on 58% I'd say Micheál Martin, would love that any uh, you know, day. Yeah he'd I know but, no, result, no, but so. when,
2: it, when you look at it it still is a sizable vote of people who feel very disenfranchised.
5: And, and you also look back at it it it's the third time a Le Pen has been on the ballot paper in, in the final ballot. You go back 20 years when, when her, her father made it, made it to the second round. And in effect, the, the support base that they, they have developed has more or less doubled during, during that, that period. So, yeah, if, if, you, if you don't address issues over time, they will come back against you.
8: Yeah, it's very true to see that trend. I mean, her father got 18% in 2002 when the vote was against Jack Chirac, who was really disliked. Uh, the slogan at the time was vote for the for, for the crook and not the fascist. Uh, and then, you know, a few years later, she got 18% in 2012. Now it's, it's more than double that. So there is a trend. What's clear is the fragmentation is based around three major lines in France. It's societal. It's about low-income groups. And, and, and you're right in saying that not everyone who voted for Le Pen is, is, is a fascist. Uh, often they were people actually who voted for the far left uh, who were voting for. For, for somebody who they felt was anti-system or anti-establishment uh, in the first round. Uh, it's also generational. As I said, he didn't get support among the youth. his he, he, major support was among those who were over 70. Uh, and, and geographical. Uh, the big cities, Paris and whatnot, voting for him. The south, Mediterranean south, voting against.
2: Okay. Um, I want to talk to you about what's happening in Ukraine. And that visit um, by the US uh, Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, um, visiting Kiev and visiting Vladimir Zelensky, promising, um, I think there's a package of 700. 100 million US dollars in military aid um, making its way now to Ukraine uh, when we see where all of this is going and Russia coming out saying look this is, this is just you know adding adding fuel to the fire here um, and escalating matters is there a point that we can we can find peace?
8: Well, Russia would say that it's adding fuel to the fire if, if Ukraine is given the means to defend itself. But we have to remember that the, the, the basic bottom line is that Ukraine was attacked in an unprovoked way and, and we've had war crimes committed against the Ukrainian peoples. We've seen what happens when Ukrainians are undefended, when they face superior military forces from the, the villages like Bucha, which have been liberated now by the Ukrainians. So as this war lasts much longer than many people anticipated, mm-hmm. I think you know more and more people are, are acknowledging what the Ukrainian government has been saying from the start that, given the means to defend themselves, they can repel but Russian this aggression. Well, delay the
2: end to any, any potential war. If there's, I mean, there's 3.5 billion US dollars already spent um, on military aid, and I think the EU has given another 1.5 billion. It's an awful lot of arms and military mm-hmm. um, funding to go into sustaining a
8: war, arguably. Well, I mean, russians the Russian army in Ukraine has simply, when they entered villages and towns, they've killed people. So, I mean, to simply say that by giving people the means to protect themselves that you're prolonging a war is to, as I said, uh, I guess, argue the side of the aggressor. I mean, like, you know, the victims have a right to protect themselves when attacked. And that's what I think military aid to Ukraine involves. And as I said, it's not unprecedented that major powers have lost wars against, you know, militarily inferior enemies when they've had enough motivation. We've seen how America lost in Afghanistan, the Soviet Union lost in Afghanistan, uh, the Americans lost in Vietnam. I think there's an increasing appreciation that the, you know, Russia may be uh, heading towards a defeat in Ukraine.
2: Okay, my thanks there to Dunica, Lisa Eileen and Fiona are staying on with me next A political storm in the UK over sexist claims. Stay with us. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has promised what he termed the terrors of earth on those responsible for the briefing behind a newspaper article. He branded an appalling load of sexist, misogynist tripe. The British Prime Minister has already apologised to the MP at the centre of the article. The Labour Deputy Leader, Angela Rayner. The British Mail on Sunday story quoted a Tory MP saying she had tried to distract Boris Johnson during Prime Minister's questions. The Speaker of the House of Commons has now summoned the newspaper editor to a meeting describing the story as demeaning and offensive to women in Parliament. Um, what do you make of all of this, Fiona? Boris Johnson coming out and pledging to punish the MP behind this uh, misogynistic tripe, as he calls it. Is it all genuine or just trying at this stage to but, I mean, solve the, the problem, make it go away.
5: The, the mole hunt is, is unlikely to unmask anybody Anybody here. Ultimately, it's uh, an anonymous uh, source. What The wider issue that, that this is showing up is a number of other uh, uh, female MPs saying that they have been the, the subject of, of sexist or misogynistic behaviour uh, within the House of Commons, be it, be it from parliamentary colleagues or, or other people involved uh, within the system. So, there does if there does seem to be an issue uh, there, uh, and certainly if if this helps to to highlight that and, uh, and address that and draw attention to it, uh, that's possibly a more productive outcome than focusing on who exactly this was when they're not nobody is now mm. going to come forward and admit it was them.
2: Um, Fiona says sir, there does seem to be an issue there. I mean, as a woman working in politics, would you be are you surprised, Lisa, by what what your what you've seen here from the, the article uh, about Angela Rayner, which just to remind people was saying that, you know, that the, the moves she was cr- crossing and uncrossing her legs, like something for basic instinct. And that's why uh, it was distracting uh, the other side of the house.
1: I, I, I actually am surprised because the story is so outrageous that when you first read it, you think it's a joke because it's so bizarre. So, you, you know, there is sexism in politics at times. Thankfully, the Oireachtas, I've never experienced anything like that. And it's a lovely workplace and there's just respect across both houses. That's my experience. I've never come across anything of the likes of that but you'd have to ask the question how that paper even published that type of tripe and it is tripe i honestly don't think a paper in this country would do the same thankfully i think our political discourse is far more respectful and at times it falls below the standard we would all like but it is nothing on that level thank god but that is nothing just...
2: on nothing on that level maybe but do you do you
1: see evidence of it have you experienced it yourself You'd experience it, you know, the, the online, nameless, faceless trolls that we all deal with in, in that, that nasty space that sometimes we have to operate in. But, but no day fellow to day, politicians? No, day-to-day, day, honestly, and I'm 10 years in politics, I have never encountered anything like that. I'm glad to say I'm, that's just my personal story. Perhaps others have a different experience. But no, I've never never come across something like that.
2: What about what about you, Eileen? Um, do you think there's a lot of pressure on women in, in a dull environment, in the
4: um, and And do you think that women experience just um, yeah ju- just around uh um what happened to uh, Angela i like do you know my my mother used to say like if it was a quote of hers saying, "Oh, if you could stop me from talking, you would." You know that kind of way. And I think that's what the media, in, in this case, is trying to do to a uh, to a a, a politician who, who's who's a woman. You know, uh, for for me uh, personally, I, I I do think that it should be investigated because, like, if a woman couldn't sit a certain way or if your hand crossed your legs, like, what does that mean? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it does need it does need a serious investigation, in my opinion, because it's not right and I think it's kind of disempowering women politicians and mm-hmm. h- how do we dress how do we sit uh, and, and personally yes I was only about three uh three days in um in, in my role in uh, in in, uh, in Leinster House and a senator an independent senator said to me that I fit the token seat obviously I was nominated by the Taoiseach which makes it obviously a token uh, seat for the 11 nominees if you wish and he said to me that I, I'm also a member of the Traveller community and that made me feel this small uh, do you know, And then I just said, you know, something, I'm not going to even get down to his level. And when I did say it to uh, the Irish examiner, the amount of backlash I got on social media, name it, name it, I have to work with that politician. I have to work with him on a daily basis. And to be fair, the Herlock, he called me into the uh, office about two weeks later and said he was going to address the House around uh, sexism and around racism. Now, uh, do you think the, it is being addressed um, sufficiently? Uh, well, we hadn't had... I don't don't think that conversation in the Shannon, but i do know the herlock is looking at having that conversation in uh in in in, in the Shannon, because i spoke to him around it and and like lisa like for me personally you know i i will say sometimes i i'm I feel a little bit nervous and stuff, but not nervous is in that like anyone is going mm. to uh, touch me or be inappropriate or anything. But just I don't know, maybe maybe it's different for me as a member of the traveller community. I'm 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 not too sure, but um, like it, it points to a
2: bigger issue perhaps as well of women going into politics and and the barriers that are there um, that we're seeing around, you know, childcare, the late hours, the demands on it as well that just simply don't affect men to the same extent, Fiona.
5: Yeah, and over time, to be fair, those issues have have been highlighted. Organizations like Women for Election have looked at things like gender quotas and said, "Well, it's not just about the gender quota; it is actually about getting people to run uh, in, in the first place and overcoming the obstacles that they that women will more naturally encounter uh, than than men, such as the you know the five C's like like cash or childcare and, and mm. contacts uh, that men will will more naturally. Uh, be, benef- be beneficiaries of, of those types of, of networks than, than women will. So to that extent, I, I, I think a lot more has been done in, in this country over the course of, of, of the last decade.
2: Okay. Uh, Lisa, I want to ask you about the Finfall Women's Health Conference. It's due to go ahead this Thursday. Is it still going ahead with the current lineup?
1: It is going ahead. Yes, it's going ahead. It's this Thursday in Smock Alley Theatre from ten am. We'll be looking at uh, menopause, menstrual health, fertility, like IVF and surrogacy, mental health, and you know the you know the reason I'm asking you that is Uh, because when it was when it was
2: announced, there was a lot of criticism that it was tone deaf, it was out of touch, it didn't have a diverse lineup.
1: Well, there was some criticism and, you know, I put my hands up to say that there wasn't racial diversity on the panels. And when that was pointed out, I put my hands up and said, you're right, there actually isn't and I'll address it. And I've added additional speakers, which I said I would do the moment it was pointed out. There was other elements of of diversity and I suppose I focused, uh, I was looking at the issues and it didn't occur to me, which is my own my own bias, um, mm. but I had no problem making additions. Uh, but there was also a lot of positive feedback and people saying it's great to have an event dedicated solely to women's health, with the focus of trying to improve healthcare for women. And I think that's that's the takeaway. And the event sold out in a day. Right. um right. We're extending the capacity I, I, and, and, I and, and, and and doubling uh, the attendance okay. because there's been such a demand to attend. So, so no, um, it will be streamed live online. There's no such um, thing as
2: bad publicity. Well, Eileen. it will be
1: streamed live online for anybody who okay. can't that's make it. Eileen, so. um,
2: just you were one of the main critics around this on the lack of diversity in, in in the schedule for this yeah, women's health conference. Yeah, and,
4: and, and to be fair to, uh, to Lisa, you know, she you took it Lisa honestly and you came out publicly and you said actually I didn't think about it you know and that tells me a lot of credit to Lisa but you know as well like we're not in the rooms to have the conversations and that's when we're, that's when it uh, like you know if you're not there you're not seen so out of sight out of mind if you know what I mean so again it just stresses the fact for me to having women from ethnic minority groups in women's movements and it's not just with this conference It's what many uh, women's movements in, uh, in, in our Ireland, that we need a diverse vices.
2: okay my thanks to the panel tonight to Eileen to Antalisa, uh, and to Lisa and the rest of my guests that's it from us uh, our program is available as a podcast on all major platforms our next news is on Ireland a.m tomorrow morning but from all the late team here good night take
4: care
1: this is a virgin media originals podcast series